In my first year as a Christian at the University of Oregon, um, I finally found a church where there was this guy that knew the Bible. His name was Pastor Bob Luther. Older guy, had this like white hair, kind of like flowing. And pretty much every time he talked, I learned something because I knew nothing about the Bible. I was a brand new Christian. I, but I just would soak it in. I'd take all these notes and I learned a lot from a man who had given himself to this book and knew God deeply. And there was one time, I was less than a year as a Christian, and he made a statement that completely changed how I viewed my life. As he was speaking, he made this statement. We are either a missionary or a mission field. You are either a missionary or a mission field. Now, I, uh, I understood what it means to be a mission field. I believed I had been rescued. Like, God set up a rescue station at the University of Oregon about 25 feet away from the gate of hell. And I heard the gospel again and again, and eventually I believed. And I was rescued, and I experienced real relationship with God. So I, I knew what it meant to be in a mission field, because I had been the mission field. But this, for the first time in my life, I actually considered that I'm actually a missionary. thought about that. It probably wasn't a real good one. But at least I gave, it gave me clarity that there was a purpose to my life. And I tell you that because when we're coming to the book of 2 Timothy, that's what Paul is doing. He is bringing utter clarity to Timothy's mind. Listen, you need to live your life on mission. As we were going through chapter 2, remember verse 1, he says, listen, I want you to be strong in the graces in Christ Jesus. I want you to be about, in verse 2, the multiplying ministry of discipleship, a reiteration of the Great Commission that Jesus gave. And then beginning in verses 3 through 7, he says, listen, I want long-term faithfulness. You want to suffer hardship like a soldier. You want to have the discipline of an athlete, and you want to have the long-term perspective and hope of a farmer planting seeds and eventually realizing a harvest. But how do you develop a life on mission? What Paul is doing, he, he is, he's clearly identifying this is what you are to do, but how do you do it? How do you cultivate a heart of a missionary? That's why these verses, beginning in chapter 2, verse 8 through 13, are so critically important. I mean, think about it. The word missionary, it means you are someone who is on mission, Right? That means you've been called by Christ to be engaged in his disciple-making mission, and you're either a missionary or you're a mission field. Now, if anybody needed a spiritual leader to speak into his life, it would be Timothy. Timothy was a pastor at this point in the church at Ephesus, but he had all sorts of difficulties and problems and obstacles. He had frequent physical ailments. I'll tell you, there's something about when you go through bodily sickness or you face a disease, It has a way of kind of laying you low, and you can lose focus. Timothy had physical ailments. He had stomach problems. He was naturally timid. He was a young man. Okay? He didn't have all the years of experience. Furthermore, there were Ephesian heiress. There were people, both outside his church and inside it, that were trying to teach error. And to make matters more complicated, he had some folks that were literally trying to tear the church apart. They'd say things that weren't true about him, not true about the word. It came off as nice as lambs, but in fact, they were actually being proponents of things that were not true and creating tremendous hardship. 
And all of this Timothy was experiencing, and so at the very end of his life, Paul writes this letter to Timothy, encouraging him, I need you to stay in the fight. You need to live life on mission, and verses 8 through 13 tells us how you do that. Remember in chapter 2, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, You know, for I'm mindful of the sincere faith which is, which is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that is in you as well. Timothy, I know you've got a genuine, authentic faith. That's why he says in the very next verse, he says, That's why kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That gift that, I, that God has given you, that fire and that passion of living life on mission for the Savior, you need to kindle it, stoke it, foster it. And so he's going to tell him in verse 8, this is how you do it. This is why this is such a powerful passage. It gives us the keys of living life on mission. Now at Fellowship, we've tried to just take what is the mission that God has from the New Testament? What are we to be doing as Christians? We call it the mission of fellowship. And just kind of condense it, make it real simple. It's this, to glorify God by living out the life that we have in Christ. Life isn't about you and your happiness so much as it's about God and his glory. To exalt the living God in a human life. And the only way that is possible is if the life of Christ literally is dwelling in you. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so life we use as an acronym. What does this life of Christ look like? It's a life of loving God, investing in others, following his word, and engaging our world. But living life on mission, friends, is difficult. There are so many obstacles and barriers to doing that. I mean, a lot of folks, they don't even know what the mission is. You ask them, like, what's the purpose and mission of your life? Like, oh, haven't thought that deeply. And then there's just the obstacles and difficulties in our life and the challenges, whether they be physical or hardships or difficulties. And what happens is if you don't have clarity to mission and you don't know how you are to live your life on mission, generally what happens is the difficulties and the daily drama of life, they just kind of take over and you just kind of move on survival mode. You just do what is needed to get through the day, to put food on the table. And God has a higher purpose. He wants his people living life on mission. How do you do it? Well, take a look at these verses. First of all, if you want to live a life on mission, you need to be energized by the risen Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not in prison. He says, remember Jesus risen from the dead. What makes you and I a Christian is that our lives are united with Christ. We believe, and literally, the Spirit of Christ lives within us. The reason that can be a possibility is because Jesus is risen from the dead. You don't have a dead Savior. You have one who died for your sins and is resurrected. And he lives his life through his people. And furthermore, he is a descendant of David. He is fully God, and he's fully man. He fulfills the kingdom promise and the covenant that God made with David that one day you're going to have a son that will reign forever. How would that be possible? Why, we have to be God and eternal. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus. So if you want to live life on mission, you and I need to be energized by the risen Christ. And you see in verse 9, Paul says, you know, this is my gospel 
And I suffer hardships even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not in prison. There's no hint of self-pity. There's no like, oh man, this is terrible. And uh, I'm, I'm in prison. I'm going to die shortly. So I'm, I'm kind of giving up. None of that. You see, he's energized by the risen Lord, even if he's languishing in a prison cell. And there's no sense of self-pity. He's got a confident power. Where does that come from in the midst of difficulties in life? It comes from knowing Jesus. There is a famous picture in Erfurt, Germany, at this convent there. And it's a painting of Martin Luther. Okay? And there's this picture of him translating the scriptures. And you see that book there with a chain on it that's broken? That's the Bible. And it's meant to represent this verse, verse 9. But the word of God cannot be chained down. You can beat his people. You can imprison them. You can kill them. You can try to eradicate the word of God wherever it might be. You can try to make it illegal. But God has his kingdom purpose and is being advanced in this world. And the word of God cannot be chained. And friends, when you come to terms with the fact that God's word is alive and that the Savior is at work in his people, when you're energized by the risen Jesus, you know what happens? Friends, we start to live life on mission. It's kind of like Martin Luther wrote that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Remember that? Where he says, The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. This glorious vision, this experiencing the power of Christ, it allows us to live life on mission. And friends, it kind of comes down to this. Learning to love and enjoy Jesus. When you, when you love Christ and you're actually enjoying him, you don't see like, oh, the Christian life is an obligation. It's a joy to be with Jesus. It has a tendency to energize your life. You move being on mission. Friends, that's why we worship. When we come together or when you're out walking and you let yourself be in awe of the creation that you see, whether it be a simple flower or the grandeur of a mighty mountain, you let your heart thrill because worship is cultivated when you see God in his glory. It's why you read the word. It's why when you hear the word preached, your soul is energized. You're, you're getting a fresh vision for moving forward in the faith. It's why you pray. All of this renews our passion for Jesus and knowing the power of the risen Savior. And I'll tell you this. People are drawn to Jesus when they see him in other people. Do you know that? Think of how you came to Christ. Was there not a Christian or two or a hundred where you saw the risen Savior at work in the lives of his people? Yeah, they weren't perfect. That's why they needed a perfect Savior, right? But you saw Jesus. They're living life on mission. You know how that happens? It happens when you're energized by the risen Christ. So what you do is you want to start each day enjoying and worshiping him. Maybe just try this. This week, dedicate each day, Lord, this day, I want it to live for your glory. What you want to do is you want to cultivate a passionate, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. You depend upon the Spirit. You're energized by the risen Lord. And friends, when that becomes our reality, friends, you're living life on mission. Let me show you another key that he gives us here. We live life on mission not only when we're energized by the risen Christ, but notice verse 10. 
when we are devoted to the spiritual well-being of others. Look what Paul says. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. Did you see that? Paul is saying, listen, all this suffering, being treated like a criminal, even though I'm not one, I want you to know I do these things for the sake of others. I see Jesus. I'm fixing my eyes upon him. And I want people to know the goodness of relationship with Christ. And that is why I am willing to suffer. When he's saying so that they may obtain salvation, it's not that they can earn salvation or they work toward it. Neither is Paul saying, listen, I suffer because I've got to work off some of this guilt or I've got to keep my salvation. No, we know that salvation is all of grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. What he's saying is, listen, I know the value of knowing the Lord. It is so great that I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to pay a price. And notice how what he refers to, he says, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It's the glory that God provides through relationship with Christ. I mean, Christians know this. It is a joy to know Jesus, but it's also an understanding that one day we will receive resurrected bodies like Christ. We're not just living for the here and now, we're living for eternity. The goodness of Jesus is so profound in his life, he's willing to suffer. He writes about it like in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. It's momentary, it's light affliction. Being beaten and shipwrecked and maligned and, and uh, slandered. You know what? This is momentary light affliction compared to the glory of being with the risen Lord. And I don't want you to miss this because I want you to have good theology. Let the Bible shape your theology. You see this in verse 10? He says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Those who God chooses by his grace. Really, this is just kind of an expansion of how he began the body of this letter. Turn back to chapter 1 in 2 Timothy. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed, verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So he says, I'm suffering. I invite you to suffer. We don't do it in our own strength. We do it in the strength of the Lord. But look at verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus when? What does the Bible say? From all eternity. Whoa. (laughs) Wait a second here. What he's doing, he wants you to understand the power of salvation. It's not just a here and now. It's been established in eternity past. You see the same saving, electing work of God uh, being highlighted like in Ephesians chapter 1. Remember in verses 3 and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the very next verse, Ephesians 1, 4, he says this, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When did God choose us? Before the foundation of the world that we would holy and blameless in him. See, Paul is saying, listen, my job is to share the gospel with authenticity, with clarity, and with love. God does the saving work. And it's a saving work that began before the foundation of the world. 
Friends, that means you and I, to live life on mission, all we're called to do is present the truth of the gospel with clarity and with love. You speak the truth in love. You do not try to manipulate people into the kingdom, right? And, I mean, this happens, so I'm going to address it. You, what you do is, there's some people that actually play upon people's emotions. Like, somehow you're going to twist their arm to get them into the kingdom of heaven. And it kind of looks like something like this, like, man, you don't want to go to hell and burn forever, do you? Like, ah, of course I don't want to do that. Well, then you just need to do this. Or you want to see your loved ones when you die, don't you? And, and of course everyone wants that. But friends, we're not selling insurance policies here. Like, you need a life insurance policy. It makes sense. No, what we're doing is we're presenting the truth about life and the gospel. You share the clarity of the gospel, that there is a sovereign God who loves people, and that he has sent his son to pay the propitiation and pay for our sins. He died and did that, and he rose again. And if you believe in him, you can have forgiveness and life and real life with the Lord. And you let God do the work. You're called to share the gospel. God changes hearts. We're called to be called to be faithful. God is the one who brings about transformation. All you and I do is we speak the truth in love. We live out our faith. God does the heart change. I mean, think about it. Before you and I really were Christians, we were spiritually dead, right? You and I needed life. Can you provide life? Don't think so. Can God? Absolutely. And so you see this devotion in Paul. You know, that's why he would suffer. I mean, remember when we went through the book of Romans? In Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, he made this rather profound statement. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why is that? Next verse. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's saying, I so desperately want lost people, my fellow Jewish people, to know the joy of the Savior If it were possible, I would rather be accursed so that they would know the joys of salvation and the joys of knowing Jesus. You know what that is, don't you? That is a selfless devotion to people's spiritual well-being. It said in Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. Remember in Colossians 1.28 and 29, he says this, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present Every man, every person, complete, teleos, fully mature in Christ. That's what we do. And he says, but it's not us. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You know that you are living your life on mission when you're willing to sacrifice and even suffer for the cause of Christ. So I want to just ask, can you see in your life any investment of time, energy, experience, uh, your finances, for the forwarding of the gospel? Will you be inconvenienced for Jesus? The answer to that question will probably help you understand, am I really living life on mission? Because when we're living life on mission, this mission of making disciples of the nations, you're going to have a desire and a devotion to people's spiritual well-being. You want them to know the goodness of Jesus. It's, It's overwhelming and compelling. I mean, think about this. Aren't you grateful for the people in your life that were living or are living life on mission for Jesus? I want you to think about the people that shared the gospel with you. 
Um, maybe it was a family member, grandparents, brothers, sisters, parents. Um, maybe it was a teacher, classmate, uh, someone on the team. Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was a total stranger that you met on an airplane or something. Don't you find yourself eternally grateful that they cared enough about the mission of Jesus and your soul to tell you about Christ, the truth about life? Friends, these are people living life on mission. I, I think about my own opportunities to share the gospel. I get to share my testimony on a pretty regular basis. Usually it's kind of like one-on-one, me with another person. Sometimes I do it in some smaller group settings, like uh, our membership class that we'll have like next week. I'm going to walk through my testimony. Sometimes I've had the privilege of sharing to hundreds of people at one time. But when I get to share the story of what God is doing and has done in my life, there are people. There are people that were living life on mission. I talk about Noel, and I talk about Mary, Doug, Frank, Becky, and Elion. These were people that actually cared about my soul, and they were living life on mission. And furthermore, my growth in Christ is populated with people that keep making these investments. And I, I guess I could say this. In many ways, I am the product of people living life on mission. Aren't you? Aren't you? And so the question is, will we join the ranks? Will we live our life on mission? Well, how do you do that? Well, look at the text. You're energized by the risen Christ. Verse 8, verses 9 and 10. You're devoted to the spiritual well-being of others. And then finally... Let me show you. If, well, if you want to have the key to living life on mission, you want to be confident in the realities of the resurrection. Verses 11 through 13 are believed to be part of an early Christian hymn. It's possible that the Apostle Paul wrote it, or perhaps under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God wanted it included in this text. But he writes, it is a trustworthy statement. Let me give you some of the realities of the resurrection. When you're confident in them, it has a tendency to keep you living life on mission. First, look at verse 11. Those who have died with Christ are regenerated in him. He says, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. The beauty of the resurrection is, is this. Christ's death becomes our death. His resurrection, by virtue of our faith and trust in him, becomes ours. It's really kind of a poetic state of what he talks about in Romans, six, Romans chapter 6 when he talks about like we are baptized in Christ Jesus. Baptized into his death means fully identified. His death to sin becomes our death and his resurrection, his life, becomes our life. That is the reality of the resurrection. You've died with Christ and you are now alive in him. And let me give you another reality of the resurrection. Look at verse 12. If we endure... We shall also reign with him. This talks about perseverance. If the previous verse talked about identification, this talks about persevering. The word endure means to hold your ground, especially during times of affliction and suffering. And what he says this, if we endure, we're willing to hang in there. We're holding on to Jesus despite whatever hardships, sufferings, and difficulties in this life. We will also reign with him. This is pretty powerful. Oftentimes we think of like, well, you know, when I pass from this life, I will be with Jesus. And you will. But if you endure, he says here, you're going to reign with him. There is going to be the experience where you are co-heirs with Christ. Somehow, 
responsibility and faithfulness and perseverance in this life equates to future kingdom responsibility. I don't fully understand what that looks like, but when you look at like in Luke 19, where he talks about the parable of the, the minas, kind of it's a measurement of weight used in talking about like silver that's given. Remember the master gives all this money to his servants says, listen, I want you to go, I want you to invest, I want you to make the most of it, and I'm going to go on a journey, and I'm coming back. And when he comes back, he says, hey, gang, what did you do with what I gave you? And those that were faithful and actually did what the master said and made the investments, he said, wow, well done, my good and faithful servant. Here's a whole bunch more. I can trust you. You actually take me at my word, which is faith. And then remember the guy who's like, oh, man, you know, I wasn't really sure you're coming back, so I just buried it. Jesus said, wrong answer. I wanted you to live life on mission. Remember the guys that were faithful? He said, yeah, I'm going to put you in charge of like 10 cities. So somehow endurance in this life and holding on to Jesus, present day faithfulness equals to future implications of reigning with Christ. And by the way, when it talks about endurance, the people that are willing to suffer in this life, suffer for Christ, they've already answered the question, why? Until you answer the question, why would I do that? You won't do it. You won't be a real good missionary. In 2015, uh, Boston Marathon, uh, there was a unique runner or a competitor in this. Um, the next day in the Boston Globe, they had this article about this man. And the, the title of the article was, Marathon Provides a Lesson. Inspiring Guys Can Finish Last. And I want you to listen to this. This is what was written. Long after the sun had set on the Boston Marathon, the official clock turned off, and the crowds had all but gone home, 39-year-old Venezuelan, Michael Melamed, crossed the finish line around 4 a.m. That is 20 hours after the race began. What made Michael's race significant is that he suffers from a disease similar to muscular dystrophy, which meant he didn't so much run the race as walk it. And as he reflected on his accomplishments, Makel stated this. Listen to this quote. In any marathon, you have to know why you're doing it. Because in the last mile, the marathon will ask you. We got marathon runners in our church. And it's not just the last mile. It's like the last five to seven miles. Your body and your mind are, why are you putting us through this? Well, this is terrible. Why? You've got to be able to answer that question. For this Venezuelan, in part, he was, his motivation for running the race was to honor the Boston Children's Hospital where he was treated as a child. But for you, will you be willing to inconvenience yourself, suffer, sacrifice, make those investments? Friends, that's why the New Testament compares the Christian life to a race. Because sometimes it is going to be hard and difficult, and you've got to be able to answer the reason why. Why would you endure? The answer, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. That's the reality of the resurrection. Let me give you another reality of the resurrection, also found in verse 12. If we deny him, he also will deny us. For those who continue to deny Christ... You need to understand you will be rejected by him. This is referring to apostasy. It's to refuse to acknowledge, to recognize or acknowledge. Remember Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. 
Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, this isn't a temporary denial. This is a stated, continual position, I will deny. It's habitual. And it's, it looks like this. You've got your reasons why you're not going to believe in God, or certainly not the God of the Bible, and most certainly not this Jesus and this bit about him being resurrected from the dead. No. Might be nice for little children and little flannel graph presentations, but I'm not going to believe. I've got an authority in life, and it's not going to be this book. I'll pick science or some other subject matter or something else, but I will not have God on his terms, and I most certainly am not going to take my position as a sinner needing to be broken before this God and this Savior who apparently died for me. No way. Will not have it. Although there may be not some, some people that won't state it that way. It is their settled position. You need to know something. If you're here today, I want you to know that God brought you here. And you need to understand the denial of Christ has significant and eternal and disastrous proportions and, and punishment. You simply are wrong. That's why Paul is suffering. He is willing to bring the gospel. Denial of Christ is going to bring you to a disastrous end. Have you considered that you're wrong? See, friends, this text right here tells us we've got God's word that if we deny him, he also will deny us. And I'd just like to take a minute to pause. Friends, I am pleading for your soul through the word of God. You must believe there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given on heaven, among heaven, among men, by which we must be saved. Jesus. He is everything he has said he is. I'll give you on a testimony of my own life. Literally, he brings transformation, forgiveness, hope, and eternity eternal peace. You got perfect. If we deny him, though, he also will deny us. And then final reality of the resurrection. Look at this. This is so good. If we are faithless, verse 13, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Those who at times fail in, in their faithfulness to Christ, but they, you need to know something. You remain in him. Why? Because God himself remains faithful. God makes a covenant promise. You believe in Christ, and I've got you forever. You are sealed in my spirit. I own you. I possess you. I've adopted you into my family. You know, we're going to fail. Humans, by our very nature, are prone to failure. That includes Christians. Is there anybody here who has, since you've become a Christian, has never sinned, never once kind of pulled back from being bold for Christ? Lived a perfect life? Because I'd, I'd like to meet you. We, we need to talk. Anybody? No! We are all a huge bunch of sinners. That's right. But we've got a perfect Savior. And there are going to be times where, you know what? We are faithless. I've seen it in my life. I'm sure you don't have to look too far to see it in your life. But I want you to know this. That's not the issue. We're in relationship with a covenant God. And even when we are faithless, He remains faithful Because 
His faithfulness is rooted deep in his gracious and covenantal character. That tells us that he is God and he is faithful to his word and to his people because he's united them with his son. And I'll tell you, this brings such hope to a guy like Timothy, to a guy like me, and to all of us. You know why? Because our future hangs not on the strength of our faith, but on the strength of God's faithfulness. Doesn't that just take the pressure off? It's not about how faithful you've been. Because, you know, that's about my life. Kind of faithful. It could be a lot better. Our future rests on the faithfulness of God. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Friends, these are the realities of resurrection. When you let them sink deep into your heart, guess what it does? It puts us on mission. Living life on mission. You know, this is such a powerful passage. And it's, it's so beautifully illustrated in the final chapter in the Gospel of John. In fact, for a few remaining minutes here, I'm going to ask you to just turn there. Turn to John chapter 21. You know, like if I was writing the Gospel of John, like I would end it at John 20, man. It has got a glorious end, right? These things are written that you would believe, right? It's powerful. And then you go back to, then you got John 21, and now we're dealing with Peter and his problems again. Like, oh, okay, what's that? And so, you know, after the resurrection, Jesus made these different appearances. Peter and the guys just not exactly sure what to do. They decide they're going to go fishing. It's the one thing that they know that they can do. Peter is crushed by his failure to truly identify with Jesus. In fact, three different times he denied him. And so the boys go fishing. Jesus never criticizes them. They're, they get skunked all night. So if you've been fishing and fishing for a long period of time and you show up with no fish, it's a bad day on the water, right? And they had one. And yet uh, Jesus apparently appears on the shoreline. They can't really see him. And Jesus says, listen, you didn't catch anything, did you? Now, why don't you throw your nets on the, on the outside of the boat there? And they do, and they have this tremendous catch. And that's kind of where this picks up here. We'll pick it up here in verse 8. So here we are at the Sea of Galilee. And the other disciples, verse 8, came in the little boat. For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging their net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. The last time scripture records a charcoal fire is the one that Peter is standing by with some Roman soldiers, and he denies him. And Jesus said to them, verse 10, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And so they obeyed. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up, drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. This was a tremendous catch. And all they were, although there were so many, the net was not torn. I would tell you this dream catch would have had immediately a profound effect upon Peter. Because remember when Jesus called Peter to himself? There was a similar fishing experience where they were overwhelmed by the catch by obeying Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, you follow me because I'm going to teach you how to be fishers of men. And so they have this scene here. In verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And you know how Jesus prepares breakfast, don't you? Breakfast. <clears throat> there it is, right? And there, it's all cooked. It's perfect. You know what I'm saying? These guys have been fishing all night. And wow, here's Jesus. Here's breakfast. And look at this. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. And this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. 
And then, look at this. Remember, Peter had denied Jesus three times. What Jesus is going to do is he's saying, Peter, you need to live your life on mission. So he's going to address the heart of the matter. So when they had finished breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord. So he affirmed that. You know that I love you. And he said to them, this is what I want you to do. I want you to tend my lambs. Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? More than these. What is that, more than these? Do you love me like, like uh, more than these guys love me? Like, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. Is that what he's doing? Or is he saying, Jesus saying, do you love me more than these men love me? Or do you love me more than these men? Or do you love me more than these, these things? Boats, fish, nets, courts, gear. I think it's really the latter. You know, so often we find our identity in our work or our family. Jesus wants us to find our identity and our purpose in him. So do you love me more than these? Peter responds in the affirmative. And then Jesus says, I want you to tend my lambs, feed my people. Verse 16, he said to him again, second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, I want you to shepherd my sheep. I want you to guide and help, protect and provide for them. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. What Jesus is doing is this. He's clarifying for Peter that the devotion of our heart will really determine the direction of our lives. You know why John 21 is written? Because God is going to accomplish his glorious mission work through broken people. His power working through them. And that's what God is showing him. And friends, this is this passage we looked at today as God's clarion call. I want you on mission. The issue isn't your past. It isn't your denials. It isn't your faithlessness at times. Do you love me now? I want you to live your life on mission. In 2004, at the Tomb of the Unknown Memorial Day, President George Bush made some remarks. And at the end of this time there, he made this couple sentences. The completeness of a life is not measured in length only. It is measured in the deeds and commitments that give a life its purpose. And for us as Christians, that means living our life on mission. You see, we're either a missionary or a mission field. Uh, I think many of you are familiar with a guy by the name of John Stott. Uh, he was a pastor in London. He died a few years ago. Off Guinness writes when he visited um, uh, John Stott, found him just kind of laying on his bed just several weeks before he died. And he recounts this conversation. And he, at the end of this conversation, he said, John, can I pray with you? And this is what John Stott said in a hoarse whisper. Pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. That's all I want. Life on mission. So friends, you need to know, wherever God has you, he's got you there to live life on mission. You're there for his purposes, to bloom and to flourish. He indwells in you, and he intends to do his work in you. So just live your life on mission. So let me just ask you, how are you doing that? How are you living life on mission? I'm going to invite some students up here. Where is my gang here? Oh, there they are. Okay. Um, they know I'm going to do this. They're, I'm going to ask them, how are you living life on mission this Sunday? 
uh, this year, and then I'm going to pick four of you, and I'm going to bring you up. No, just kidding. Okay. You're all getting nervous. Like, okay. All right. Why don't you uh, kids tell them your name, and why don't you tell them how you're living life on mission this summer. Go ahead. Okay. So my name is Faith Lauderdale, and this summer I will be going to Malawi, Africa. So before I go to Africa, I will go to a two-week boot camp training in Merritt Island, Florida. Um, while we're in Florida, we'll get construction classes and evangelism classes, so we're prepared for the mission field. Um, we will also sleep in tents, bathe, and do our laundry in buckets to prepare us for the living conditions in Malawi. Um, after boot camp is up, I'll head to Malawi, and our, my mission is to build a playground for orphans in Malawi. Um, we will also be planting fruit trees that aid orphans rescue units to provide, to provide food for the locals um, there. Uh, my hope this summer is to connect with the people and that their hearts would be open to God's word in the time that I'm there. Hi, my name is Eddie Dark. So this summer I'm going to be going to Ecuador to work on a BMW training center. BMW stands for Bible Missionary and Work. Uh, it's a, basically it's a free college for um, people aspiring to be missionaries. It kind of teaches them the basics of being a missionary, kind of the necessities of what you need to know. So I'm going to be building housing and classroom facilities for the school. So, And then I'll also be sharing the gospel by puppets and dramas and things like that at different churches and stuff around Ecuador. So, Hi, my name is Emily Dark, and this summer I'm going to Malawi with Faith. Um, I'm going to be drilling a well for in a Muslim community for who they don't have water. And... Um, I and I'm hoping that the well will give us a platform to share the gospel with them by using puppets, games, and sticks. Hi, my name is Ellie Dark, and this summer I will be going to Trinidad to build a sidewalk for people in Trinidad. I will also be doing a week-long VBS for kids in Trinidad. Most importantly, me and my team will be sharing the gospel in as many ways as possible. Thank you all so much for supporting me spiritually and financially. Hey, I, I wanted you to hear these kids, these students, because they've got an answer for this summer, like, how am I living life on mission? They've got a target. They're asking for us as a church if we'd pray for them, we'd support them. They've got their tables out there. I encourage you to go visit them. I mean, they're, they're in for a tough summer, okay? All right? But they're in it for all the biblical reasons that we just talked about. They're willing to suffer because they're concerned about people's spiritual well-being. And so I just want to ask you the question, how are you living life on mission? Why don't we pray for this gang up here and for all of us? So let's pray. Lord, how good it is for us just to be with your people and to be before you with your word open and our hearts saying, Lord, teach us your way. And Father, for someone who has come here today who's never trusted in Christ, would you right now just have them turn from sin and say, Lord, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he's paid for my sins and he's risen from the grave. And I'm asking for not only salvation, but you to be the Lord of my life. Lord, for these students, would you just continue to fill them with a vision of how you will use them throughout their entire lives as being vessels fit for your honorable use, living life on mission, bringing the gospel of grace and encouragement to them. And Lord, for all of us, Lord, we've got one life, 
we're asking that you would make the most of it. So bring clarity of heart and vision, intentionality to our lives. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.